page 31 is part of our series, the title of which is on the screen behind me, Get a Life, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective Servants, Personal Management for Personal Ministry. And I'll remind you about what that is all about in, in just a bit. But, excuse me, but uh, we have, have some things coming up that you need to know about over the next few weeks. And this is the last lesson in this particular series, so we'll conclude uh, Get a Life uh, today. Next Sunday, we will have two separate sessions for ladies and for men that are question and answer sessions. So in this room, uh, the ladies will have their question and answer time, led by a panel of our leadership team wives, and then the men will be down the hall in the foyer area, and we will have some of our leadership team men on a panel to entertain questions from the guys. And those questions will be from the, the last two series we have done, the parenting series and also this series, Get a Life. Any questions that you have, in particular by way of implementation, practical application, how do I do this in my, in my life, we'll do our best to try to answer those. Now, we've only got 45 minutes uh, to, to do that, so we're limited, but we'll do the best we can in that, in that limited time. So think about any question you might have, and if you haven't done so already, we have forms at the information table that are designed for you to just write out your question ahead of time, and there's a box for you to put it in. You don't have to put your name on the question if for some reason you want to stay anonymous. So that would help us. We'll collect those and uh, go through them and answer as many of those as we can. But uh, if there's time, we'll also allow time for just folks to raise their hand and ask on the spot. Okay? So that'll be next week. Ladies' session in here, men's session down the hallway. And then two weeks from today, we will begin three week, a three-week stint of four classes, four separate adult classes for those three weeks. So our young uh, single adults, the Crossroads class, will be meeting for September 12 and 19 and 26. Those same three weeks, we're going to have our young married class meeting. That's led by uh, Zach and Lena. And we'll also have our home builders class meeting as well, and that's led by Wayne and, and Michelle. And everybody who doesn't fit into those categories, young adult singles, young married, or in the home builders section, all the rest of you will be in the class that I lead called the rest of you. <laughs> <laughs> And we'll have three weeks together. And then when those are done, we'll all be back together. First Sunday of October, October the 3rd, for a series called How to Handle Fear and Anxiety. How to Overcome Fear and Anxiety from a Biblical Perspective. Okay, So that's what's coming up during this hour. I also want to remind you that next Sunday during our 9.30 worship hour, we are going to have a series, a sermon series from the book of Proverbs called Living Wisely in a Foolish World. So we encourage you to be there, but also to invite someone to come as well. And we've prepared uh, invitations for that. They were inserted in your program today, and we have a pile of those at the information table, so you can uh, get a few of those and invite somebody to come beginning next week for, for that particular series. All right, today on page 31, we are going to end our series in Get a Life. <clears throat> And we're going to be looking at the last four of the seven habits of highly effective people. Last week we looked at the first three. Today we're going to look at the, the final four. And you see at the bottom half of page 31, we say there, if we follow the three principles already covered, and those are these, be purpose-driven, 
keep your eye on the prize and prioritize the important, then we will have more, and here's the key word, discretionary time. So if you'll do what we talked about last week, and if you weren't able to be here last week, as every week, our messages and lessons are recorded so you can listen to them and you have the notes in front of you. But if you follow those three habits, you implement those in your life, it will result in you having more time uh, at your discretion that you can use the way you want to. Now, you need to understand, though, that having more time at your discretion doesn't mean automatically that you will use that time for the appropriate purpose, right? So compare it to uh, instilling a budget uh, for money in your life. And if you start with a budget, if you haven't had one in the past and you don't know where your spending is going and you finally decide, I've got to have some discipline on this money flow thing, so I get a budget together. And as a result of that, I now have more discretionary money to spend. At my discretion, I can now use this extra money in ways that I have to decide. I have to exercise discretion, thus discretionary money, discretionary time. I have to choose. Well, the mere fact that you have that extra money in your hand doesn't mean, right, that you're going to use it for appropriate purposes. More money in your hand might mean you just blow it on nonsense. And the same is true with your time. If you follow these first three habits that we laid out last week, you will have more discretionary time, but having more discretionary time doesn't achieve the purpose for which we're teaching this class. Namely, that you use that time to advance the mission to which God has called us. And so I say in that next sentence, we will have, if we follow those first three habits, we will have created what one author calls margin in our lives that can now be used in more productive ways. But the key word in that sentence is that can now be used in more productive ways. It doesn't mean they will be. And so you have to decide, as I put these habits into place, and I hope that you will, that I'm putting them into place for the purpose of having discretionary time in order to invest it now in the purpose that God has placed me here for. And we've looked at that, what that purpose is in previous lessons. And so we'll now have created margin in our lives that can, but it's not automatic that it will, be used in more productive ways, that is, in ways that help us achieve our purpose. What is that? Quote, glorifying God in the mission by maturing obedience to his word in every role of life. And a close look at those various roles that God's given reveals that they all involve relationships, both with God and with others. Now I say a close look at those roles that God has given us each to play in carrying out his mission. A close look at that will reveal that it all, they all involve relationships whether with God or with with others. Now, where would you look to find those roles? Do you see the footnote there? Footnote 8, down at the bottom. The personal mission statement that we gave you on pages 2 through 11. So you don't need to turn there now, but on pages 2 through 11 of your notebook, there is this personal mission statement that we gave you as a guideline. And I'm reminding you about that because it laid out the various roles that God gives us in Scripture to carry out. Many of those roles are common roles. We all have them in common. They're for all of us to carry out. And then some of them are vocational or calling roles. You 
may be a parent, you may not be a parent, those kinds of things. But you make a list of those roles to which God has called you, and he has called us to play those roles in a way that helps us maximize our participation and effectiveness in his, in his mission. So where would you look for these roles? You would look there, back at pages 2 through 11. And if you do that, you will see that they involve relationships, both with God and with other people. Now, that should not surprise us. The next sentence says, because Jesus said the greatest commandments involve relationship with God and with others. Love God, love others. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus is asked in Matthew 22. And he says, the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. Relationship with God, with other people. So the roles that God then has assigned to us all involve relationship with God and with other people. And so we are going to see then that we are, in these last four habits, going to have to instill habits, discipline in our lives, such that we pursue those relationships with God and with with other people. Bottom of page 31, the first three habits that we saw last week are foundational for the last four. So that's why we've broken them up. There are seven of them. Why didn't I just deal with all seven of them at one time? Or we, we broke them up this way because they logically divide into these two portions. The first three form the basis for what we're going to look at today. If you don't do the stuff we talked about last week, you won't have the time to do what we're going to talk about today. If you do the stuff we talked about last week, you'll have the time. You'll have the discretionary time. Now the question is, will I use my discretion to channel it this way? That's not automatic. But I'm going to assume that you want to do that. And so those habits, if instilled, are foundational for what we're going to look at today. The first three habits help us in personal management, which will allow time for the last four involving personal ministry. And that's why the subtitle of this course is that. Personal management for what? For personal ministry. So just to beat on that discretionary time theme just one more time. If you do what we said last week, you'll have more discretionary time. doesn't mean you'll use it for the right purposes, though. Or to put it another way, if you engage in personal management, it doesn't mean you'll automatically channel it in personal ministry. It could be personal management for personal playing around. Personal management for personal nonsense. Personal management for personal wastes of time. Personal management for more of my personal hobbies. I mean, whatever it is, personal management to spend more time at the bar. I mean, you, you got more time, you can spend it any way you want. But it should be personal management, the first three habits, for personal ministry, the last four habits. And so with that, let's look at habit number four, the title of which is in the middle of page 31. Look out for number one. On page 32, we say, it is not about you. It's not about me. And so let me beat on that for a bit. I'm going to beat on this section for quite a while. It's not about you. Look out for number one. So the question is, who is number one? And I've probably given you a clue that you're not it. At the top of page 32, it's not about you. It's not about me. So let me ask you, what makes you tick? What gets you really geeked? 
What gets you really excited? What motivates you? And sometimes what motivates us is hard to, hard to identify because we tend to look at ourselves, all of us, myself included, through rose-colored glasses. We tend to see ourselves as better motivated than we really are. We tend to see ourselves as better people than we really are. We're really not the best judge of who we are because we see ourselves as pretty cool. I'm a good guy or I'm a good gal. Oh, sure, I make mistakes. Doesn't everybody? How many times have I heard? How many times have you heard that? I make mistakes. And then we throw in the doesn't everybody. So the I make mistakes has done that phrase. I make mistakes. Doesn't everybody has done a few things to deflect the truth about you. Okay, I make mistakes. Well, the Bible talks about them as worse than mistakes. Yes, we make mistakes, but the Bible talks about sin and me pursuing idols of my heart. So it's worse than I just make mistakes. And then when we throw in the dozen everybody, we've in effect said, it's not that big a deal. I'm only human. Everybody makes mistakes. So we have downplayed the importance of this. And so it's often hard for us to identify what makes us tick, why we do what we do, what our motivations are. And so how can we accurately identify our motivations, why we do what we do? I have a proposal for you. Motivations are revealed in reactions. It's worth writing down. And if you're filling out one of your forms, it'll look like you're writing down what I'm saying. So this will be a good time for you to fill out one of your forms. And Brown will think you actually care about what he just said. But motivations are revealed in reactions. I'm going to explain what what I mean by that. Not just in actions. Notice what I said. Motivations are revealed in reactions. Not just in actions, but in reactions. Now here's why. Our actions can obviously expose our motives. What I actively, thus actions, I actively pursue, obviously says something about what I'm about. True? So what I choose to do, what I act upon, my actions, my routine, says something about what's important to me, what I'm about. And so that's obvious. And so it's not so hard to identify then what my actions say about what's important to me, what motivates me. Actions are fairly obvious. But reactions are what reveal what's not so obvious. They show what we didn't know. Get this. Reactions show us what we did not know was there. Now, again, I'm going to explain in real life how this sort of thing happens. We are all placed by God in circumstances. That is, those circumstances are comprised of people and things. God places us all in circumstances. The circumstances include the stuff that's going on in my life and also the people in my life. And God places us in those circumstances. And our lives are lived and our growth is achieved in the context of those relationships and those situations. And so, when I am in those situations and I am in those relationships, how do I react? 
when the situation is not to my liking? How do I react when the person is not to my liking? How do I react when God places me in a circumstance that I really don't like? Or a person that is part of my circumstance, my God-given circumstance, is acting in ways that I do not like. How do I not act now, it's how do I react in that circumstance which includes the situation and the people that God has placed in my life. So is it about God or is it about you? And for most of us, it's still too much, even if we've made progress in our Christian lives, it is still too much about us. And how will I know that? Well, the way I'll know that is in how I react when people and things don't go my way. How I react when people and things don't go my way. Notice, people and things don't go whose way? Moi. Who's number one? Me. What's the criteria for whether or not this is a good situation? Whether or not I like it. What's the criteria as to whether or not you should be allowed to breathe? Whether or not I like you. What's the standard? Me. And so that is why I say, when you ask the question, what makes you tick? What motivates you? Actions are fairly obvious. Reactions reveal what you didn't know was there. And so now I've got you in my, my, as part of my situation. I've got this adverse circumstance as part of my situation. And how I react to that will show whether or not in my heart, in my mind, it is about me or it's about God. How do I react when people and things don't go my way? What causes you to get it in gear? gets a rise out of you? What gets a reaction out of you? When you're displeased or when God's displeased? Ever thought about that? I mean, when you really get motivated, when you really get excited, when you raise your voice, I mean, something needs to be done here. Action needs to be taken. Very often it's a action that needs to be taken is a reaction because I'm displeased with the people or the situation that I'm in. And when was the last time you were motivated, got a rise, got it in gear, reacted because God was displeased, not because you're displeased? And so you begin to see what I mean when I say, if you want to know what really makes you tick, what really motivates you and me, reactions are a great barometer of that. Our motivations are revealed in our reactions. And so notice the first paragraph, top of page 32. It's common due to our sin nature for us to be self-centered. And we in America live in a particularly, especially narcissistic culture. Narcissistic. What is that? It goes back to Greek mythology. It goes back to Narcissus staring in a, in a pool, seeing his own reflection. Couldn't move, couldn't do anything because so enamored with his own reflection. 
And we have this term narcissistic then. It's about me. So just ask yourself, how much time, by the way, do you spend in the mirror? Narcissus? I mean, am I right? Do we live in a narcissistic culture? I mean, it's like every time I go by, i got to make sure. Looking good. How much time do I have to spend? How much money do I have to spend? On me and how I look. Narcissistic culture, focused on ourselves. And the Bible teaches two important truths that are the answer, the antidote to this selfishness. The first one is this. Life is intended to be God-centered. The Westminster Catechism's first question and answer are quite well known. Very first question and answer in the Westminster Catechism, which is centuries old, says, what is the chief purpose of man? The answer, the chief purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, that's certainly a God-centered statement, but author John Piper has made a small but very important change to that answer. Piper says it would be better to answer that the chief purpose of man is to, now get this, to glorify God, not and enjoy him forever, but glorify God by enjoying him forever. That is, enjoying God is not something we do in addition to glorifying him. Enjoying God is the means by which I glorify him. You say, man, this is too heavy for me. I am lost. Well, stay with me. I'll try to bring you, bring you back to the path, okay? Because this is actually connected to what I was just talking about a bit ago. Our reactions reveal our motivations. The circumstances that we are in, including the people that we interact with, show something about us that we did not know was there. And that's connected to whether or not in my relationships and in my situations, I am enjoying God in that situation, in that relationship. So let me explain. It says that we are to enjoy Him forever. And we really glorify God, says Piper, I think rightly, by enjoying Him forever. This word enjoy, what's enjoy mean? It means I find my joy there. Find joy in. So I glorify God by finding joy in Him forever. When I do that, that brings glory to God. When I find my pleasure, now hear this sentence. When I find my pleasure in what pleases God rather than what pleases me, it shows the value and the worth of God. What pleases God is more important than what pleases me. Well, now I have a totally, a radically different perspective on that person and that situation. Because the issue is not, as I said earlier, it's not, is this person pleasing me? The issue is not, is this situation to my liking? The issue now is, how can I please God with this person? How can I please God in this situation? And so do I order my life saying, Lord, I want to show your worth. That's where we get the word worship from, by the way. Worthship. I want to worship you, show your value in this relationship and in this circumstance. Bring glory to God by finding joy in Him no matter who I'm with and no matter what's going on. So that then transforms the way I react. Would you agree that's a just a totally different way? 
of now judging the situation I'm in and this person I'm with. The criteria is not now, number one, me. The criteria is now, how can I show the value and worth of God in this relationship and in this circumstance? Our reactions reveal our motivations. If I react based on the standard of what pleases me, then things will be good when you're good. Things will be good when it's all good. But if I, and if I respond based upon what pleases me, if you're not good, how am I going to react to that? Anger? Frustration? And it's revealing what actually motivates us. Resentment? If I react based on what pleases God, and I'm in an adverse circumstance, that is why the Bible can say, even in difficult circumstances, in all things, you can have a heart full of gratitude, of contentment, thankfulness, contentment. I'm still able to find joy in And so I need to be saying to myself, then, Lord, I like what you like. I want what you want. I'm pleased with what pleases you. So let me ask you this, and we'll move on. I told you we were going to beat on this for a bit. In how many situations and in how many relationships can you find joy in God? In how many of your relationships, in how many of your circumstances can you enjoy God? Can you find joy in God? How many? Every last one. That's why I say our reactions reveal our motivations. Because if it's what I like, I react a particular way. If it's not what I like, it's not about what God likes, it's what I like. It's not about who God likes, it's who I like. It's all good if if I think it's all good. This is a good relationship if I think you're good. All about me. Now notice on page 32. Those who delight in God do so then in all circumstances. Whatever situation with whatever people. If our joy is tied to circumstances, it will be quite uneven. If it is... Tied to our relationship with God, it will be constant no matter the circumstances. And that's what Paul did in Philippians chapter 4 in this famous passage. He says, rejoice, find your joy in the Lord always. And again I say, find your joy in God. Let your gentleness be evident to all. Notice, in relationships... Find your joy. Let your gentleness. How can I be gentle? I can be gentle because the criteria is not how you affect me. The criteria is how can I please God? Now I can be gentle. Remembering that the Lord is the major factor. Look at the next sentence. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Why am I anxious? I don't know how it's going to work out. This might not work out the way I want it to work out. I know how I want it to work out. It doesn't look like it's going in the direction I want it to work out. There are a zillion ways that this could go in ways I don't want it to work out. I am really anxious. But what if you were somebody who said, however God chooses to let it work out, 
I will find my pleasure in him in that situation, however it goes. No, I'm good. I don't know how it's going to go. I don't know what happens tomorrow. There's all kinds of stuff outside of my control. But whatever happens, I'm good. Because this is how God wants me to show his worth, his value, bring glory to him in that situation. October 3rd, we start a series on how to overcome fear and anxiety. You've gotten a preview. Paul writes all of this. He says down at the bottom... I I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you've been concerned but had no opportunity. And I'm not saying this because I'm in need. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And where was Paul when he wrote that? He's under arrest. When he writes it, there's a chain rattling because he's chained to a Roman guard. Lousy circumstances, but a guy who's enjoying God, finding his joy in God despite adverse circumstances. Our reactions reveal our motivations. Habit number four is look out for number one, but the question is who is number one? And it's God, it's not me, it's not you. And life is to be lived for the benefit of other people. But see, it's only the person who places God on this throne that I've been talking about, the throne of the relationship, the throne of the circumstance, who can now say, all right, I can deal with people. Because I see a good God involved in bringing these relationships into my life. Otherwise, how are you going to look at people? The people you like, you like. The people you don't like can take a hike. Right? But here, life is to be lived for the benefit and can be lived for the benefit of others because I'm pursuing a God-centered now agenda. If we see ourselves as the undeserving recipients of God's grace, then we'll not be preoccupied with perceived violations of our so-called rights and we'll be free and willing to invest ourselves in others. Notice that word, invest. In order to invest yourself in others, you've got to divest yourself of you. In order to invest in others, you've got to divest yourself of you. That's what Jesus did. Invest for the benefit of others. He divested himself, came to earth, became a servant for the sake of other people. That's what Paul did. That's what we're called to do. Paul had all kinds of rights, but he said, I forego those rights. Bottom of page 32. We did not use this right to material support in the ministry. I've not used any of these rights, he says. Top of page 33. Why? He tells us it's for the benefit of other people, 1 Corinthians 9. And so habit number four, lived out in relationships, is this. Look out for number one, and number one needs to be God. And our reactions will reveal what motivates us. Habit number five, flowing from that, is be quick to listen. Because if I now do that, if I now have God, God is number one. 
God's glory is number one. Finding my joy in God is number one. It's not about me. I'm not the criteria God is. How can I show God's value and God's worth in this situation and in this relationship? If that is all the case, now habit number five, tell me about yourself. Be quick to listen. Because now I've, I'm divesting myself of me and I'm investing myself in you. So I can listen to you. Because I care about you. Notice what I say there. Tell me about yourself. We all talk, all like to talk about ourselves more than others. Why? Because we're self-centered. Now is that true? You know, if you're one of these people who says, you know, I don't, I can't talk to people. I'm just telling you, I can't talk to people. Actually, I know you can talk to people because I've talked to all of you. And I know one subject that can always get people to talk is them. I'm, I'm, I mean, I, you know, my profession, I talk to people. And one of the things I know is, tell me about yourself. Where do you come from? What do you do? Were you reared here? What's your family situation? People can talk. I mean, unless you are phys- you have a physical problem that prohibits you from be- inhibits you from being able to form words, everyone here can talk. The question is, am I motivated to talk? And when we talk about ourselves, we're very motivated to talk. But if I put God on the throne, now I become motivated to let other people talk. To listen to other people because I care about them. We have a calling to speak to one another and for each other. The means, this means that we must practice speaking the truth in love, using our speech to build up one another. But in order to know how to engage, now get this, in personal ministry with one another, we have to listen first. So I can't know how to use my words to help you unless I first use my ears to hear you. And so I have to hear you. I have to know you. I have to know what's going on with you in order to be the instrument of help in your life. We must see it as our role to actively engage in that kind of personal ministry. And for many of us, it requires a paradigm shift in a number of crucial areas. And I've listed four of them here in our view of the church. Our church is not just a place I go. It's a community of which I'm a part. That's what the Bible teaches. So for those of you for whom this is just a place you come and you leave, you're not pursuing the church the way the Bible lays out the church. The church is a community of which I am a part. And I am to minister, that is serve, that's what the word minister means, and I am to be ministered to. I, am to, I, I need help. So I need help and I give help. And as I practice divesting myself and investing in others, I will increasingly make others more important than me. We need a change in our understanding of the gospel, in our understanding of scripture, and in what the real goal is for daily living. I'll let you guys read those on your own. So habit number four is, look out for number one. Number one is God, but flowing from that is then, I can invest myself in other people. I can be quick to listen to them now, putting their needs first. Habit number six flows out of that further still. Play your role. 
So the idea here then is with this shift now in radical shift in priorities, it's not about me. It's about God and what God values and what shows worth to God, regardless of the disposition of the person that I'm in or people I'm in relationship with or the, the, the situation that I'm in. Now that I've had that radical shift in my perspective, and every one of you here I know because it was really like really quiet when I was talking about motivations being revealed in our reactions. That's true for me as well. You know you need that shift. Then when that shift happens now, I can be quick to listen to other people and I can start to act in ways that are designed to help other people. And that's what Habit 6 is about. Not just speaking in ways that help other people, listening in ways that help other people, but acting in ways that help other people. Play your role. The main act in this play, this drama that belongs to God, who is the producer and the director, and you're an actor, the main act in this, top of page 34, the modern-day evangelical church is all too often characterized by professionalism and passivity. Professionalism on the part of those who are in full-time, so-called full-time ministry, passivity on the part of the so-called laity. You guys know what I'm talking about there? So we've got professional people we pay to be ministers. My dear mother loved it that I'm a pastor. She loved it that I'm a pastor. She would tell everybody. She just loved it that I went into the pastorate. But she never said to people, he's a pastor. She would always say, my son is a minister. And, you know, my dear mom, I love her to death. And so I understood what she was saying. But, but you know, you know how many people are ministers? Do you know what the word minister means in the New Testament? It means servant. So it's true. I am a minister. So are you. But we have this professional idea. There are certain people who are ministers. But the Bible teaches we are all in the ministry and are participants in it as ministers. The word just means servant. Ministry means service. And so the scriptures teach, last sentence in that top paragraph, the following principles that are foundational to every person all the time ministry. And that is that all members are indeed ministers. And secondly, each member minister has been uniquely designed by God. The body is not made up, you see 1 Corinthians 14 there, of one part but of many. God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, many parts, one body, and you're part of it. And I'll be, uh, okay, we'll get to the last habit here shortly. But you guys say, you know, you got all these forms to fill out. I'm moving to Tennessee with Dale. You know, one of the forms that we're having you fill out is the fit for service form or fit for ministry form. Where is my fit in the ministry? Now, why would a church be so bold or stupid or whatever word you want as to tell everybody you've got to find a place of ministry? Why would we do that? Well, it's not just because I just want to get a bunch of stuff done. Brown just has this crazy idea. Friend, this is what God says in Scripture about who we are 
and what we're to be about. And I and the leadership team of this church would be remiss if we did not impose that on you, make that as clear as we possible can. Can I force you to do that? Of course not. But once we have asked and once we have told you what God says and given you an avenue to channel that, then before God we've done what we can do. But why have we done it? Because this is what the Bible teaches. All members are servants. And all member ministers, servants, are uniquely designed by God. You've got something to bring to the table. Every one of you. And the task, bottom of page 34, of pastoral ministry is to equip servants to serve, ministers to minister. The Bible actually says this, doesn't it? Look at the verse. Christ gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Why? To prepare God's people for works of ministry. The final habit, as your watch strikes noon, is on page 35. In an ongoing way, improve your serve. So you establish in your life the first three habits. That will give you this discretionary time, hopefully channeled in the direction that God outlines, not just for more frivolity and nonsense. It will turn your attention toward other people because habit number four, you'll look out for number one and there's this radical shift in your perspective. It's not about me, it's about God. It will affect your day-to-day relationships and the way you view your circumstances. It will affect the way you listen, how much you talk. It will be more about other people than about you. You'll want to know how you can serve them. In order to know that, you'll listen to them. It will affect not just how you talk and how much you talk and how much you listen, but what you do. You'll play your role. Find your role within God's plan. But that's a lifelong thing. And that's what page 35 and Habit 7 is about. Improving your serve. Because it's not something that I just do once and I have this thing and I never improve. But I'm constantly improving. We must be constantly improving the ministers that we are and are called to be. That's what I mean by improving your serve. It's a lifelong thing. It's not a marathon. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so I say on page 35, we're called to a lifetime of service. In order to maintain our ability to serve God and others in a vibrant way over the long haul, we pace ourselves for the race. After all, we can only give what we have, and therefore it's necessary to refill the tank and charge the batteries and sharpen the saw. If we do that, it will allow us to help others from the overflow of a full life. And here are suggestions for regularly renewing yourself and improving your serve so that you can channel that into the calling that God has for us. What if you had a church? What if our church were a community of faith where every last person did what we talked about here? Beautiful or what? And it's not pie in the sky, guys. This is real life. This is what we're called to do. This is what we're called to be. We take these many weeks to go through this material because it's that important. Let me tell you one other thing, and then I I will shut up. We're done. But this is so important that what we've gone through these last several weeks is going to be a part of our community service ministry going forward. As folks come into our church, we're going to offer them a seminar that will go through these principles, probably in abbreviated fashion, because I yap a lot. Abbreviate it down to its essentials so that everybody who comes into our church knows what we've gone through these last, these last few weeks. It's that foundational. It's that important. 
My prayer and my, and my encouragement to you is that you begin to put into, your, into practice in your life what we've gone through here. As God brings us new people, new members into our church, we're going to let them know that this is what God expects out of us. And thereby, by God's grace, create that kind of community of faith that has that kind of profile. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this series, the weeks we've been able to spend together on these just extremely important foundational topics that have effect, practical effect in our lives, in our relationships, and how we view our circumstances. I pray, Lord, that uh, my brothers and sisters here will see that. They'll see the need for this change in perspective that makes it about you and your glory and your value and your worth and not about us. And we'll be able to see that our reactions reveal where we're coming from. And we've all, we all, myself included, Lord, have these adverse sinful reactions because it's about us and not about you. And as we change that, Lord, I pray that it'll change our homes. It'll change the way we work with people in our workplaces. They will see Jesus Christ, something different, absolutely radically different in us. As we then have this calmer, less anxious demeanor, disposition about us, we can calmly then go through the life and the the path that you have laid out for us, channeling the gifts and abilities that have been bestowed to us by you to carry out your purpose. And we can live fulfilled lives. We can live lives of meaning and of purpose, knowing that what we do right now counts forever. And doing it together, doing it in community, as one body in Christ. Lord, I pray for that for our church. I pray for that for these individual brothers and sisters. Help us as we try to implement these things. We need your grace in order to do it. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. We ask you to bring us back safely next Lord's Day. Amen.